All right, so here in Matthew 28, this angel gives them an invitation to come and see. He says, come and see where the Lord lay. Like, I want you to think about this. The angel says, come on in. Like, come on in to this tomb and see where the Lord lay. Like, what an invitation. Like, these two women got invited in to see the greatest moment in human history. I think a moment that everyone and anyone, skeptic, Christian, or a skeptic, anyone would want to see, like, what happened that first day. And these women were invited to come and see. I cannot think of a greater invitation than this moment to come on in and come and see. Like, I love this thought. I don't know if you've ever been on the outside of something and you're just like hoping someone would invite you in. Like, come on in. Like, come and see. If you've been an outsider, you so badly want to be invited in. I mean, this was a life-changing invitation to come on in to see. What a life-changing moment. I don't know if you've ever had an invitation like that, like an invitation that's like a life-changing moment. You know, when I was 16, uh, I had, I think, a life-changing invitation, or at least I thought I did. Uh, when I was 16 years old, uh, I went to a basketball camp, and sorry, it's a basketball analogy, but I went to a basketball camp. I was 16. Uh, I went to this, this camp where, like, an NBA player hosts the camp. His name was Rafer Alston. Now, for those of you who don't know, let me explain. His also, his, his street name was Skip to My Lou. Um, yo, I loved, I loved Skip to My Lou. All right, if you, he played for the Heat, obviously, for a couple of years, but this was the most infamous street baller who, like, ever really made it to the NBA, right? So Rafer Alston in Southern California is hosting this camp. Um, I'm at his camp, and if, you've, if you know anything about these kind of camps, the NBA players not really there, like, all week long. They kind of show up for pictures and stuff and, like, watch you for a few hours. That, that's about it. So Rafer comes, and it was that day where, like, Rafer's here. And, like, the director of the camp's like, yo, Rafer's going to put on a five-on-five on a few different courts. I mean, there's tons of kids there. And he's like, he wants to just watch you guys play. And so we, they put on this five-on-five five on five little, you know, tournament thing. And I'm like, yo, I'm playing in front of Skip to my Lou. Like, I was so excited. And again, if you don't, just, you know, look up YouTube later on Skip to my Lou. Amazing. Um, and one mixtapes, all early 2000s, you, you don't get it. Um, but I Skip to my Lou was watching. And it was one of those days, and this is just one of those random days where, like, I really did, like, for me, I had my best game. I don't know what it was. I was like, Skip to my Lou's here. And, like, I couldn't miss. I scored, like, 80% of the points. Had this, like, it felt so good. I'm like, yo, I just played great in front of Skip to my Lou. And when the game's over, the director comes up to me and goes, hey, Skip was watching you, and, and Skip wants to meet you really quick. This happened. I'm like, what? Like, they don't do this. It's like a one-on-one with Skip. So he invites me over. I'm trying to be calm. I'm like 16-year-old. So I'm already freaking out. You know, you know me. I'm like freaking out. I'm like, hey, what up? What up, Skip? <laughs> I just walk up to him. Like, yo, what's up, man? He's like, bro, I, and this is really true. He's like, yeah, I watched you, man. And like, you, you played really well. Like, you had a great, great game. He's like, listen, so we're like 30 minutes from, from LA. He's like, listen, I'm going to go to LA right now. It's like noon. Uh, I have to be there for a meeting for a few hours, but uh, I'm going to come back at seven o'clock today and I have a one-on-one training. Uh, would you like to be my training partner? And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, in my mind, I'm like, stay calm. I was like, yeah, you know, I, I think I could do that. Like, yeah, seven o'clock. Like, sure, of course, bro. Skip anything for you. So uh, I go home, I tell my parents, I'm like, yo, Ray for Austin, like, skip to my loo. Just asked me to do a one on one private training session with him. Like, I am freaking out. And they're like, who's that? And like, YouTube doesn't exist in 2004, so I can't even tell him. So I go to the gym, or I, go th- I get there at six o'clock. He said, be there at seven. I got there at six. I'm so hyped. I'm so excited. I'm just like, I try to eat well. I try to like, dr- hydrate. I don't know. I'm just like, crazy hyped. It's 6.30, rolls around, 30 minutes before 7, 7. You know, I'm like, okay, there must be traffic. It's LA. It's terrible driving down to like, you know, Orange County. It's terrible. Like, okay, whatever. 7.30, 8, 8.39, 9.30, I start packing up. Skip to my loose, skipped out on me. <laughs> and honestly, it was like heartbreak. So Skip, if you're watching this, bro, like what happened, man? Like, come on. <laughs> like, 
it was one of those things where I, I've never like been, I've had the craziest high of my like life. It's like the lowest low within a matter of hours. But, and it was, and honestly it was heartbreaking, but, but obviously when Skip Tumalu invites you, like you can't pass up, even though he, he passed up, but I can't pass up on that invitation. Like it was a life-changing, or so I thought, it was a life-changing invitation. Now here's the idea, obviously. Maybe you've had an invitation that can like change your life. This is an invitation that we cannot pass up on. And it's an invitation that won't disappoint. Like, here's the idea. Imagine an angelic being, way better than Skip to my Lou, but imagine an angelic being is like, come, come on in. Come and see the empty tomb. Come and see this. Come and see, I love what it says, come and see where he lay. There's this invite from, from the angel to say, come and see Jesus. Come and see where he lay. Listen, I really do believe this Sunday morning, we want to do the same thing. I, I believe this, this idea of this invitation from God to come and see. Come and see the evidence. Come and see where he lay. Come and see where he was. We have an invitation from God right now to come and see. I don't want, you, I don't want to lose sight of this. I think that this invite is still happening today where God is saying, come and see. Come and see the empty tomb. Come and see where he lay. Like, this is not just some mystical story where it teaches us how good triumphs over evil. That's not the resurrection. This was a real, true, historical event that forever changed human history. And there's this invitation from God himself saying, come on in, come and see, like, come. Come and see where he lay. And so this morning, I'm asking everyone, believer in Jesus, non-believer, if you're like a skeptic, whatever it is, I would say just come and see. I almost want to refresh you today even as well. Just come and see where Jesus lay. Come and see what happened that day. And so as we walk through this text, we're going to look at three things. Uh, the idea of come and see. We're going to see this idea. Number one is see the evidence. See the evidence. That's what the angel basically says. See the evidence. Then we're going to look at see the risen Jesus. Don't just see the evidence, but you have to see the risen Jesus. And then lastly, we're going to look at see the future. Come and see. See the evidence. See the risen Jesus. See the future. Can we do that? Can we look at this today? Let's do this. Number one, see the evidence. Let's read verse one through seven again. I want us to see the evidence from the text. Here's what it says, verse, verse one. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. His countenance was like lightning. Lightning. His clothing was as white as snow, and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. But the angel answered and said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. And go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Again, number one, see the evidence. I want us to notice this idea of these two Marys, what they did. Verse one says something really interesting. Verse one says they came to see the tomb. They came to see the tomb. They weren't coming that day to see Jesus. They came to see the tomb. They came to see his body there that day. Verse 5, actually, the angels acknowledge this. I love how the angels say it. Look at verse 5. It says, I know, the angels say, I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Like, I love what the angels point out. I know that you're seeking the crucified Jesus. You see, they were seeking Jesus that day, but not the risen Jesus. They were seeking Jesus who was dead. They were seeking the same Jesus who they saw crucified just a few days earlier. You see, they were expecting to see a dead Jesus. They were not expecting to see the risen Jesus. You know, I think Jesus blew them away when they, they saw the risen Jesus, obviously. 
But I think even right now, this morning, some of you came in and you don't expect to see the risen Jesus. Maybe you come and expect to see the dead Jesus. Listen, I believe Jesus wants to show up and he wants you to see the risen Jesus. They came to see the Jesus who was crucified, but he's not there. He's not there. The Jesus who is crucified is not there. You know, I even think, like, for Christians and for believers, I think some of us come to church with the same spirit that Mary came to the tomb with. We come with the spirit out of respect. Like, we want to come out of respect. We come to church out of respect. But we don't expect anything to happen. But we don't expect there to be life. Listen, I want to invite all of you to come and see life. Come to church with this mindset or come to Jesus with the mindset that I'm not coming to see death today. I'm actually coming to see something. So come and see, listen, the risen Jesus. You know, know what's so interesting about this? Uh, Mary Magdalene specifically was with Jesus for a long time. You can read about this in Luke chapter 8, but she's mentioned there. Like she was with Jesus for a couple of years in his ministry. We're, we're told that Mary Magdalene was a woman that Jesus cast seven demons out of her. Like she was around Jesus. She was with Jesus. She was with the 12 disciples. She walked with Jesus. The point is, Mary saw some pretty incredible things. Mary saw Jairus' daughter come back to life. Mary saw Jesus feed the 5,000. Mary would have seen in all of these miracles, witnessed them, watched them firsthand. She would have seen Lazarus come out of the grave. I mean, Mary has seen some incredible things about Jesus, and still she's coming with this mindset that he must be dead. Even though Jesus multiple times says, guys, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die on the third day rise. And Peter was like, Jesus, what the heck are you talking about? What does this mean? Death? Not you. That can't happen. You're the Messiah. It's crazy. Like Jesus even said, I'm going to die and rise again. But still she and really no one that day expected a risen Jesus. Like we have to get this, right? Sometimes there's this mindset today that we think, oh, people back then, they're just so naive. I mean, they would believe anything, any weird story, any miracle story, they just believed it. No, the same evidence they need, we need today is the same evidence they needed back then. Like when people say, oh, back then people just believed anything. I mean, that was just like their culture. Like they were just really like into mystical kind of a things that they were just open to these things. When people say that, it means they don't understand history. Like understand this, the Greeks and the Romans, here's how they viewed the body, right? The, to them, the body was weak. To them, the body was like, when it's dead, good. The body's not good. Actually, the spirit, like the day someone died, according to the Greeks and Romans, it's like the spirit was liberated that day. They don't want there to be a physical resurrection. Understand that the Jews' mindset, no Jewish person believed in like one person rising from the grave to stay alive. They believed in resurrection day at the end of time for everyone who believes, but they don't believe that one person in the middle of history would rise again. Here's what I'm trying to get at with this thought. Mary did not expect to see the risen Jesus. She had doubts in her heart, just like you and I have doubts around the resurrection. The same evidence we needed, we need, was the same evidence she needed. You know, uh, C.S. Lewis talks about this. He says, man, we, he talks about this as chronological snobbery. He says, like, you know, as we get kind of further and further into history, we just always assume we know more, we're smarter, we're better. We assume the previous generations weren't very smart or wise. We just kind of built upon everything, and they didn't know what they're talking about. And, and really, that, there's like a snobbery kind of mindset to that. We got to understand, for Jews to believe in a resurrected Jesus, it would take a resurrected Jesus. Like, for anyone to come to this mindset, like to change their whole philosophy, their whole mindset, their whole idea of life and death. It, would, it must take some sort of cataclysmic change to happen for them to change and shift their mindset. You see, I want to do the angel that said, come and see where he like, we need to this day consider the evidence. Actually, John chapter 20, verse 2, this is what Mary said, because John kind of gives us like an insight into the story that Mary runs to Peter, and here's what she says. She says, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Like Mary's like, they've stolen Jesus. 
Again, there's not even like one, like if you had like 1% belief in your brain, like maybe, could it be, like could it actually be that Jesus is risen? Like it's crazy there's not even like that thought. She's like, he's stolen, they stole his body. Like there's not even this thought, like a little minute thought, like maybe, maybe, maybe what he said has come true. You see, I think our hearts have this like default mode towards, towards doubt and skepticism, and I get that. We even read in verse 17, let's look at the verse again. It says, when they saw Jesus, they worshiped him, but some doubted. I mean, again, think about this. They're looking at Jesus going, I can't, I don't believe what I'm seeing with my eyes. You know, I, I want us to really get this and take this to heart for just a second. I try to write it this way. The human heart does not want to believe in something that will make it give up control. Do you see what the resurrection does? The resurrection of Jesus means, oh my goodness, he's everything he claimed to be. He's the son of God. He was before, like the world, he was with the Father. He is eternal. Everything Jesus ever claimed that maybe they're like kind of brushing aside for the sake of his miracles and teaching and helping people, they're like, oh my goodness, this is real now. You see, I, I think that we're kind of inclined not to want to believe in the resurrection because we know what it means. We know if Jesus is risen, that he is Lord of all. We know that if Jesus is risen, that we must put our lives into his hands. We know that we must give up control if Jesus rose again, and which is a good, it's a beautiful thing, but it's, it's a scary thing. It's scary for us to be like, oh my gosh, Jesus rose again. Like, so he is everything he claimed to be. Can I, can I tell you, you guys know this, like if Jesus did not rise, we are obviously wasting our time here. But if Jesus rose again, which he did, then everything he said matters. Like this to me is the crux, obviously, of Christianity. Paul says that like if Jesus did not rise, you are the most pitiful people. Like we are. He's like speaking to us. But if Jesus rose again, then we have to relook at what he said. We have to relook at what he did. We have to relook at what he claimed. It means that my life must come under control of his life. You see, there's this idea again of the resurrection that I want to just invite you into. Come and see the evidence. Like, come and see. It is going to be so important that we slow down and take the time. It's funny to me how even the enemies of Jesus know he'd rise again because they're like, yo, look, listen, uh, Jesus claimed he'd rise, so don't we just throw a few Roman guards in front of the tomb? Even they seem to have more faith and belief than the disciples did. We're like, we need to put some guards in front of there because maybe the disciples will steal the body. Let's put some Roman soldiers in front of there. And, and the disciples don't even have that mindset. Mary doesn't have this mindset. They're just going to the tomb that day and they're like, where, where's my crucified Lord? They must have stolen the body. It is unbelievable what's happening. Now, here's what's interesting to me, obviously, and I want to point this out. But in verse 2, in verse 2, it talks about the angel rolled the stone away. You know, we asked the question, like, why was the stone rolled away? When I was a kid, like, obviously, I'd answer like anyone else. Like, why was the stone rolled away? I'd be like, oh, so Jesus can get out. We got to understand something. The stone didn't keep Jesus in the tomb. Jesus didn't need the stone rolled away for him to get out. In just a few days, he's going to be walking through walls and be like, yo, what's up, disciples? Like, we didn't need the stone to move. He didn't need that. That didn't need to happen. The stone wasn't rolled away so Jesus could get out. The stone was rolled away so we could look in. The stone was rolled away so you and I could see that day that it is empty. You see, God is not stuck. God is not captured. God is not hidden away. God is free. Jesus is risen. He did not need the angel to do this. It was for our benefit so we could come in and look inside. You see, I want to point this out again. I know that faith is not our default setting. Like, it's not. Faith is really no one's default setting. Like, there must be something outside of us that happens to go, oh my gosh, to activate, like, but I have to consider and count, the, like, the cost of this. Like, I want you to understand, when it comes to the resurrection, no one is saying, just check your brain at the door and, and just have faith. We're saying, like, consider the facts, consider the arguments, consider the events that day, consider the disciples, like, consider everything around this moment. We must look at it in this way, in this light. Like, this is how we approach this.
So here's the idea. Matthew 28, 6, I want to read it again. The angel says, he is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where the Lord lay. Come see the place where the Lord lay. So let's talk about this really quick. He's like, look, it's empty. Now, really, there's no secular, even scholars, that say the tomb was, was filled. People will acknowledge and say, yes, okay, that Sunday morning the tomb was empty, but how was it empty? Usually, there's only two ideas behind this, right? So stay with me for this. They say either Jesus' friend stole the body, or the Romans stole the body. His enemies stole the body. There's really two options. Like, either the friends stole the body that day, or the Romans stole the body that day. So if the enemies stole the body of Jesus, and this is something they wanted to just do, and they stole the body, and now there's this great message going around that Jesus has risen. They, all they have to do since they stole it is just produce the body. Hey, here's the body. We, we, we did that. We just were afraid you're going to steal it, so we stole it before you. I mean, so here's the body. So be quiet, Christians. Stop talking. Right? Now, if the friends stole the body, so that's not really possible. Or if the friends stole the body, the friends of Jesus stole the body. I mean, you think about this. Of course, these are trained fishermen who got past trained soldiers and somehow, and they broke the seal on the, Roman, on the, the stone, and they get past the Okay, all that happens, let's just say. But they steal the body. All right, and if you think about this message, like, okay, the 11 of us get together, we got to steal the body of Jesus. Let's steal the body of Jesus, okay? We steal the body of Jesus. We have the body of Jesus. We do something with the body of Jesus. The Romans are like, we're going to kill you if you keep saying that Jesus is risen. You think that eventually one of them would break, like, all right, all right, well, we stole the body of Jesus. Like, think about what the disciples went through. Peter's crucified upside down. You have them being stoned to death, pierced to the side. I mean, their, their families are being tortured. The followers of Jesus, others who claim to have seen the risen Jesus, were literally lit on fire, fed to lions. I mean, you think about what Christian. I mean, eventually one of the original 11 would be like, we didn't gain any money from this. We didn't gain any, nothing like that the world would look on and say like, if you're to make this up, you should benefit. Nothing benefited them in any way other than death and suffering and persecution. And yet none of them were like, all right, guys, we, we did it. We, we made it up years ago. That never happened. My point is that we must consider the, the arguments. We must consider the circumstances around the resurrection. This is something all of us must look at and consider. I love what Blaise Pascal said, this French uh, philosopher and mathematician. He says, I believe the witnesses that get their throats cut. <laughs> He's like, you know what? The ones who just give up their lives. It, so people die for lies all the time. But do people die for a lie that they created, that they knowingly created 11 of them and multiple others? So like Blaise Pascal said, you know, no, I believe the one who gets their throat cut. There, there must be something to this. They didn't benefit in any way. In fact, the church just went underground and for years and years was persecuted. How did this message change the world? Somebody must have seen something. That is the idea of Easter Sunday. I mean, you think about this. When the angel says, come and see where the Lord lay, this is such a weird detail the Bible gives. And whenever the Bible gives like little details, we should like focus on that. Like, what, why would they say that? Uh, John's version in John chapter 20, it says this about what they saw in the tomb. It says, Mary saw, listen, the linen cloths lying there and the handkerchief that had been wrapped around Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Like, what a weird verse. You're like, so if you're the disciples, you're still the body. Oh, it's still the body. Okay, wrap, like, let's take off his clothes. Okay, that's smart. And this is decay and smell. And let's like wrap it up, make it look nice. Like, I know they're there. We got to hurry. But let's like speed this up a little bit. Like, no one's going to do that. Like, you're in a, if you're still in the body, you're going to hurry it up. You're not going to take the clothes off. You're not going to disrespect your Messiah, your Savior by making him naked. And you're not going to do that. The Romans aren't going to do that. There, no one's going to be in a hurry, but also at the same time, make it look nice. My, my point is, the Bible always throws in these little details. Like, consider this. Why was it folded neatly? Why was it left there nicely? Because Jesus is risen. Because no one stole it. No one took it. 
Like we must consider these things around it. So I want to kind of point out five things. Like these are five things that do not take a lot of faith to believe in. That again, many unbelieving historians will kind of agree to these things around the resurrection of Jesus. Here's the first one. Uh, first thing, we'll put them all up here. But people agree Jesus was a historical person, okay? Doesn't take a lot of faith to believe that. We'll acknowledge that. Jesus was crucified. Yes, a lot of literature and documentation, non-believers and believers, okay, he was crucified. Then the tomb was empty. Yeah, we don't think the tomb was full. We didn't find the tomb. Sure, the tomb was empty. We'll agree to that. Maybe around how it was empty, that's world debate. Number four, people don't disagree with this. His followers believed he rose from the grave and appeared to them. They're not saying it's true, but they acknowledge, yeah, his followers, followers definitely believe this and that he appeared to them. They claim this. They said this. Sure, that was true. We'll acknowledge that. The last thing, the disciples were radically changed and emboldened. Like, okay, fine, we will acknowledge that. Like, these things don't take a lot of faith to believe in around the circumstances of the death and resurrection of Jesus. You go, okay, he was a historical person. Sure, he died by crucifixion. Sure, the tomb was empty. We'll disagree about what that looks like, maybe. Okay, yeah, the disciples, uh, they really believe they saw him. And okay, you know, there is something obviously that happened where they got crazy bold all of a sudden. My thing is, like, let's examine these. Like, let's slow down. You know, when someone's like, yo, they just made it all up. Like, they just made it up. I'd be like, what a terrible way to make it up, right? If you're going to make up a story, like, hey, let's make this up. Okay, so when we write our gospel stories, how about we're, like, always fighting and bickering? How about we're arguing who's the best and who's the worst? How about, like, when people don't like us, we say Jesus called on fire from heaven and killed him? How about we portray ourselves in that way? We should do that. No, if you're going to make it up, you're going to make yourself look really good. You're going to be like, yo, and Jesus walked in water and, and so did all of us, actually. Like, you would portray yourself a lot differently, I believe, if you were to make this up. You're not, again, the way they wrote was because this is just how it happens. They're bickering. They're arguing. They're fighting they're complaining, they're being called Satan by Jesus. Like, you would only put that in there if that's what happened. Like, I want you to consider just if they made this up, what that would look like. Would you really do this? Would you really say, hey, let's make this up and let's have the first people to witness Jesus be women? Yeah, that will hold up in court. No, it actually, it won't, right? Back in that day, that wouldn't hold up in court. A woman's testimony was not allowed or received in court. If you were to make this up, why would you say, I know that they don't receive that and like, believe that, but let's just put that woman psalm first anyways. The only way you would write that in is if that's what happened. Like the points we should consider, just the circumstances. I love this thought. C.S. Lewis talks about this, how the gospel content, listen, the gospel details are far too specific and counterproductive to be legend. This is a guy who studied ancient literature, studied, studied like the Iliad and Odyssey, studied how different fictional writings were made, and he goes, no, but there's something different about the Gospels. He actually wrote about it in this way, saying, when you read the Gospels, they seem to be written like modern literature. They, gave, they give weird details that don't really matter, but kind of matter. That when Jesus was with the disciples, and he, it says uh, after he rose again, that he had a breakfast cooked for them, and it says that day on the sea that Peter and John, they caught 153 fish. Okay, why 153? Like, what's the point of that? Because that's what happened. Like, you don't write that. If that doesn't like help the story or help the narrative, if you're writing fiction or if you're writing something that people believe, you don't throw that detail in there. That would just be like, that's a mute point. Like, why would you do that? Because that's what happened. My, my point behind this, I agree with C.S. Lewis on this, that the gospel content is far too counterproductive. Why portray yourself in silly, foolish ways? Far too detailed for it to be legend. Just consider every, the linen, consider the, the circumstances around this, unless this is what they saw. You see, we got to consider that day, how Peter went from denying Jesus by the fire when this little girl kind of tried him. He's denying Jesus by fire. And just a few days, he's preaching the gospel in front of thousands of people. He's been thrown in prison. Like, what changed in you, Peter? Like, how did you go from this fearful guy to like being crazy bold? 
Like what changed from like all the disciples hiding to now going out and dying? Like how do you get this crazy boldness all of a sudden? They saw something that day. You see, the whole idea is that doesn't just happen. Jews don't just automatically believe in the resurrection that took place for one person in one moment in human history unless they saw something that day. See, all these Jews started believing in Jesus the Messiah. They died and rose again. Why? Because they saw something. You don't change your mindset like that. Paul, who persecuted Christians, goes, there's no way. He saw the risen Jesus and goes, I, I, can't, I just can't live this way more. There's just, I've seen the risen Jesus. My life is forever changed. James, the brother of Jesus, goes, yeah, my brother truly is Messiah. That would take the resurrection for that to happen for me to believe my brother was the Messiah. There's no way, Josh, there's no way you're the Messiah. Like, it would take the resurrection. My, my point is, it takes all of these things. It, t- it takes so many things for us to go, oh, yes, yes, Jesus, you've risen. How do 12 misfits, tax collectors, fishermen, zealots, how do these men change the world? How does Jesus never write a book, and yet more books are written about him? How does Jesus uh, never do any artwork, but yet more artwork is about him than any other person? How does Jesus never write a song, but there's more songs written about this person? How does a guy who never leaves his home more than 100 miles how does this guy radically change the world? How do, you, how do these 12 misfits, again, who are just all over the place, how does this become the leading faith where over 2 billion are followers of Jesus? Somebody saw something that day. Many people saw them. Paul writes over 500 people at once saw him. You don't write that and put that in a public document amongst Pax Romana when travel is actually pretty common pretty easily and the working it out. And you're not naming people by name and saying, well, let me talk. You're not going to put that in there if that didn't happen. My thing is, it'd be easy to say, hey, wait, wait, I talked to these names you mentioned. They actually, they didn't see Jesus. You're just, you know, fabricating your numbers a bit. We don't have that anywhere. The point is somebody saw something that day. And we got to take this to heart. We got to see the evidence. And, and I get it. Because for Mary, it still wasn't enough. In many ways, she's like, uh, someone stole his body. Someone, someone stole it. I, I see the evidence, but it's still not enough. You know, there's a, a guy named Anthony Flew. I might have mentioned before in the past, but Anthony Flew is, or was at one point, he passed away, was this the leading modern atheist of our day. He was the guy who taught Richard Dawkins, like, his form of, like, modern-day atheism. That was his teacher in school, Anthony Flew. Anthony Flew wrote tons of books on just why there's no God. His last book he ever wrote a book, his last book he ever wrote was just called There Is a God. Towards the end of his life, he became a theist, he didn't end up becoming a follower of Jesus, became a theist. The arguments for God's existence were just too strong for him, even though for decades he made a living teaching that there was no God. And I think it's at Oxford University, just that's how he made his living, was saying there's no God, and let me just talk this in a philosophical way. He came to believe that there has to be, there's too much design, too many specifics in the universe, too many things that imply intelligent design. So there's just too much for him that made him a theist. But then he was writing about all the different world religions in his book, There is a God. He's like writing the pros and cons of them. Here's what he said about Christianity. He says, the evidence for the resurrection is better than, than for, uh, the evidence for the resurrection is better than for claimed, or for claimed miracles in any other religion. It's outstandingly different in quality and quantity. He acknowledges like out of all of the miracles ever, like written or talked about, there's just more evidence around the resurrection of Jesus. And he like writes even how like he wants to believe, but he doesn't want to believe in all the other things attached to it. That was too hard for him, too difficult for him. Like he goes, there's so much evidence for the resurrection, but again, our heart doesn't want to believe in it because it means we don't want to be in submission to someone else. Because if Jesus rose again, man, that means he is Lord. If Jesus rose again, then that means my beliefs on what name the topic are secondary to what Jesus says about it. I mean, the resurrection truly changes everything. You know, it's a verse I've been thinking about this week in light of Easter. Jesus said something I thought very profound that I think is very fitting. It's in Luke 16, 31. Jesus said, listen, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded that the one rise from the dead. 
Jesus is like the, Mo, the law of Moses, the, 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 the Pentateuch, the first five books. This is a great argument for how we're all sinners. The law could never save us. It just reveals that we're sinners. It just shows we need someone outside of us to save us. He goes, if they don't believe in Moses and that, even if one rises from the dead, they won't believe. And I think he's picking up on something very true, which is like the idea is we can present all the evidence ever, but you still might not believe. Can you prove this? No, in the scientific term, you cannot prove it. I can't prove George Washington is the first president in the same way. But you say the evidence is overwhelmingly in its favor. Like if this were going to go to a court of law, the evidence demands some sort of outcome, some sort of verdict. Either he's guilty, he's the Messiah, or no, this is all just made up. Like you must consider it in that kind of a way. Like where does the evidence lead you to? And you know what? Even if you, even if like many who saw Jesus, even if they, I rose or someone rose, they still didn't believe because it just means so much. It means I have to surrender me and my will. So here's the next point. The evidence might not be enough for you. So number two is this, see the risen Jesus. Like how? Well, I want to look at how Jesus did it to Mary. And honestly, this is what we've been praying for, for like for you guys, for like the last weeks, few weeks, that you would see the risen Jesus. So let's read what happens in verse eight. What happens next? So it says, verse eight, so they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. And they ran to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice. So they came, and they held him by the feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Listen, number two, see the risen Jesus. Before I kind of unpack this a bit, I want to point this out. Like, why these Marys? Like, that is a question a lot of people. Like, why did Jesus appear to these two women? You know, it's interesting. You can read this in Matthew's version and Mark's version of the cross. These were the last people at, at the cross. They were the last ones to be with Jesus. You know, it seems as if God is saying those who go through the deepest sorrow will experience the greatest joy. They're with Jesus all the way till the end of the cross, these Marys. They're the last ones with Jesus. They're the first ones to see the risen Jesus. And I love this. Listen, it says this phrase in verse 9. It says, Jesus met them. Jesus met them. They didn't find Jesus. Jesus found them. There's a side of this where Jesus just needs to meet you. Like some of you might be seeking Jesus. Maybe you're not seeking Jesus. I will say this, Jesus is seeking you. Jesus met them. You know, I don't know how you ended up here today. I really don't have a friend advise you. Like, fine, this invitation idea, stop, I'll go. I don't, know, I don't know how, like you ended up here, but I, I believe this with all my heart that Jesus is seeking you. Jesus said, I have come to seek and to save that which is lost. Jesus met them. Jesus met them. I love that. As they went... Jesus met them. As they went, Jesus met them. Jesus met them. Church, Jesus is longing to meet with you. There's an idea of this where it's like, it's not just some one-sided relationship. Jesus is not like some celebrity where like, oh my gosh, it's Jesus, meet and greet, selfie. Like, there's not like, this is so weird. We have like a weird perspective sometimes. Jesus goes, I want to meet you. Like, it's not one-sided. Like, this is both ways. I want to see you. I want to meet you. Just the thought that Jesus met them like, he's like, I need to meet them. They're going to go tell the disciples, but I'm going to stop them from what they're doing. I'm going to meet them. See, listen, see the risen Jesus, uh, how? Right now, you, I really do believe there's a side of this where you have to understand Jesus is pursuing you. If you don't realize that Jesus loves you deeply, he's put people in your life to pray for you, to encourage you, to say, hey, I'm not going to let you go. Hey, Jesus loves you. I've called you up by name. You're mine. You're mine. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You are mine, and I'm going to pursue you with everything I got. I'm not going to let you slip away. I will leave the 99 to go after you. You are mine. 
You have to understand this is the Father heart of God saying, you are here right now in this moment hearing these words because Jesus loves you and is pursuing you. Jesus wants to meet you right now. I believe that with all my heart. I know Jesus at one point in time radically captured my life where like I just was aware of God, but he met me and completely changed the direction of my life. That he gave me purpose, meaning, joy, fulfillment that is not perfect or easy, but Jesus is seeking to meet you, redeem you, save you. He loves you so much. You have to understand that this Sunday, Jesus is like, I'm, I'm seeking you. I'm seeking you. I want to meet you. You think you want to meet Jesus? Jesus wants to meet you way more. And see what happens then? Jesus speaks to them. There's just this word, this one word, I love it. This word rejoice, it's so weird to me. Uh, the root word, and you can look this up, but it's just this word Cairo. It's crazy. He says Cairo, right? In Greek, that is this word grace. Maybe you've heard that, but it actually just means it's used in this form of be glad for grace. Jesus meets them in this word, he says, would be understood as like, be glad for grace, like rejoice. Be glad for grace. Aren't you glad for grace? I'm so glad for grace. Thank you, Jesus, for grace. Thank you that you seek me. Thank you that's not about my works or what I've done. I'm a f- pretty filthy person. I need grace. I need, the, I need the love of God to pursue me and seek me. Thank you, God, for grace. And this is what Jesus says to them. Hey, be glad for grace. I'm here. He, he approaches them, and his first word essentially is grace. Be glad for grace. Rejoice in this. Rejoice for grace. I mean, that's why we gather together. We just say, thank you, Jesus, for grace, because we all know we're sinners saved by grace. We all know we're nothing without the grace of God. I am what I am by the grace of God. Like, we know that this is the message of the gospel. It's grace. And this first word out of Jesus' mouth summarizes what makes Christianity incredibly unique, grace. Every religion, work your way to God, do these good things. The gospel says this, grace. You couldn't do that. This is what makes us unique. This is what makes us different. It's just the grace of God. God's not look, looking for you to like fix up your life and, and start doing better things. God just wants to make dead things alive. Grace. Be glad for grace. I'm so thankful for the grace of God. It's the grace of God that brings salvation to all men. It's the grace of God that changes lives. It's the grace of God that redeems me out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's the grace of God that makes me, who is dead in my sins, alive together with Christ. Grace. Cairo, grace. He just says grace. And know what it says they did? It says they held his feet. We'll keep going with this thought. They held his feet and they worshiped him. They worshiped him. First of all, Jesus is being worshiped. What does that mean? He is God. Jesus is like, yo, 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 don't worship me. Yo, I'm like, I'm not God. He's like, he, just, he receives it. They worship him. And let's just say this. Can I say this? When you've met the risen Jesus, this is the only response. If you're like, how do I know I've met Jesus? You're going to worship. Like, how do you know you've experienced Jesus? You, you, you're going to worship. I mean, I think about the beginning. I'm just like listening to the worship in the beginning. The words were so heavy, so weighty, so beautiful. And, and you can't help but just it resonates in your heart. You're like, yes, I, I got, I'm going to sing. I got to sing. It's going to come out of me. If you've met the risen Jesus, you're going to do what these Marys did. You're just going to worship at his feet. I, I want to I say this and just be really clear. If you've ever like, I don't know if I'm saved, what's going on. Listen, you know that you have this heart of worship God is producing in you if you met the risen Jesus. He's just doing something different in you. And then I love this. Keep going with this thought. Jesus is like, hey, 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 go and tell. Go and tell my brethren. Do you know what the angel said in verse, I think, seven? The angel says, go quickly and tell. And then Jesus says here, go and tell. I love this. This is Easter Sunday. Easter Sunday begins with, come and see. And it ends with, go and tell. The angel's like, come on and see. Come on and see. See where he lay. And he's like, now go and tell. And, the, and Jesus goes, go and tell. You see, Easter is that. It's come and see Jesus. Now you cannot keep this to yourself. Go and tell. If you ever get frustrated by annoying Christians, like, I'm sorry, it's Romandy. That's the first words out of Jesus. Like, that's the first two imperatives. Go and tell. Like, come and see, go and tell. We have to. This is just a part of our, our commissioning from Jesus. We got to go and tell. If you experience the grace of God, come and see, and then it's going to be go and tell. 
and we go and we tell. I love this. Don't, don't just sit in the garden. Get to work. You could just sit in the garden all day long and be like, oh my gosh, Jesus, this is amazing. Yeah, it's true. But go tell, go tell people. Invite people into this wonderful message, this wonderful news that we have. Go and tell. And that's what, that's what they do. You know what I love? The Bible is so crazy. The Bible is so unique to me, right? Like the more I say it, the more I'm like, oh my gosh, like does anyone else see this? Know this? It's so cool, right? So this idea, this garden moment, obviously this garden moment, Jesus, we're told, was buried in a garden tomb. Mary at first thought he was a gardener. This garden moment takes us back to the first garden. Because the first garden, Adam and Eve, man and woman, walked with God. There was joy. There was peace. There was this walking with the presence of God himself. They knew God personally, firsthand, had intimacy with God. They knew God. Then Adam and Eve sinned and fell. Eve takes the fruit, shares it with her husband. She gives some false news. Hey, eat this, knowledge of good and evil. You see, you see, something was lost in the garden, intimacy with God. Sin won. Death came into the world. I mean, in that first garden, there was sin and death, false news that goes out. But here in this garden, death does not win. Jesus wins. Here in this garden, he, a woman that shared this false news, he now says, no, I'm going to take women to, sh- to be my first people to share the good news. Go and tell. See, everything that took place in the garden, God was trying to like undo and rework and say, now in this garden, death doesn't win, sin doesn't win, I win. I've conquered sin and hell and death. In this garden, I'm going to send my woman to preach the, the true news. I'm going to send the Marys to go and preach the gospel. And I love that Jesus is basically undoing what took place in the first garden. Listen, Mary met the risen Jesus that day. And what needs to happen is we need to meet the risen Jesus. Church, listen, see the evidence. Consider it. Just consider it. See the risen Jesus. Jesus right now, I believe, is pursuing you more than you're pursuing him. And here's just the last thing. See the future. When I say see the future, let me just say this. When you were the first disciples, right, and you walk in, you're married. You see the tomb. You see that it's empty. Here's what that communicates. Wait, Jesus, as the angel said, is not dead. He's alive. When you see the tomb being empty, you know what it tells you and I? It says that we too will die, but we too will live. See, the future is this. Because Jesus rose again, we will rise again. The future is I don't have to fear death because Jesus conquered death. When you see the tomb being empty, you realize this thing that plagues us called death, I don't have to fear it anymore because Jesus conquered it and rose again from it. Paul said it best in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, listen, the body is sown in corruption, like you sow a seed in the ground. It's sown in corruption, but it's raised in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. You see, he's saying, this is your future. You will be sown into the ground, but if you believe in Jesus, you'll come out of that ground, a spiritual body, a glorious body, that you might go into the ground, but you come out made new. You know, this year has been a year, probably for a lot of us, just a lot of different pain, suffering, grief. This, this, you know, many of you know, but the last like 14 months has just been a lot of loss for our family. Some friends we love dearly. We lost, my wife lost both her parents the last 14 months. You know, my, my son, who has so many questions around this, he lost both of his grandparents in, in a span of 14 months from like four, I think four to five years old, that's that frame. Had so many questions about life and death. And my son was talking to me. He's like, so dad, if I believe in Jesus, I get to see Jesus and be with Jesus again one day? Absolutely. Jesus said, if you believe in me, though you die, you shall live. He's like, so when do I go to be with Jesus? Like right away? I'm like, right away. He's like, is it fast? I'm like, son, it is so fast. The Bible describes it like a twinkling of an eye, meaning like before you even blink, you're there. Your last breath on earth, earth is your first breath in heaven. He's like, is that fast? I'm like, yeah. He's like, I don't want it to be that fast. I'm like, why? He's like, going fast, it makes me want to go pee. And I don't want to, I don't want to pee. And I'm like, all right. I'm like, bro, don't worry about it. That's the last thing you have to worry about. I love that. I was his concern. He's like, can it go slow? I'm like, don't worry. You, I promise you, you won't pee on the way there. 
And I love it. I, I love the thought around it. He's starting to realize, wait a second, so life doesn't just like, go on here in this world? Well, it does go on, not, not the way we might maybe see or know it. The Bible's really clear that you go into the ground, but you're raised up new, that just like Jesus died and rose again, so too will die, die and rise again. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. You think about what death is. Death, death is just, it, it's, it's almost like it taunts us. You know, obviously we're surprised by death. If you've ever had a friend who passed away, even just very recently, I'm just very surprised by a passing of a friend going, wow. Like, just, death just kind of throws you off a little bit. Just surprises us. Like, I wasn't expecting that. Death is one of those things where you don't think about until maybe you're, you're kind of confronted with it, sadly. Like, we kind of try to push it aside in America. We're like, I don't want to talk about it. Why are you doing this? Just, I don't talk about death. But it's one of those things that haunts and plagues all of us. I do remember just talking to my father-in-law last summer before he was diagnosed with cancer. He's like, I got a plan for the next 10 to 20 years of my life, the next 10 to 20 years. That was just a few months ago. He's diagnosed in the fall, passed away February 3rd. He's talking 10, 20 years, 10, 20 years. My thing, my thing, my point is, death just plagues us. Death will be a surprise. No one's ever like, oh, that makes sense. It's always like, no, that's not okay. Why do we have within us, like, we're like, death is not okay. Like, why do we have this thing? Like, that's not normal. Like, that's not right. That's not okay. It's, I, don't, I don't even care whatever circumstance it is and they live a long life. Like, that's not good. What is that? You know, people want to tell us, listen, don't fear death because death is inevitable. People will tell us, don't fear death because death is natural. But the Bible says, don't fear death because death is defeated. You see, death is not natural. It's not fair. We're like, hey, death's natural. It's a part of life. Don't even fear it. I'm like, no. Like, I love what one philosopher said. I can't say his name, so I'm just going to quote him. Uh, he said this, he who pretends to look upon death without fear lies. <laughs> like, like, he's like, no, don't lie. Like, death plagues all of us. It taunts all of us. If you pretend to look upon, upon fear without death, he's like, you're lying. There's just something about death that you go, that's not right. Like, someone has ambitions, dreams, future, hopes. And you're like, that all just comes to an end? Like, that just ends? That is not fair. And the Bible would agree with you. Say, yes, yes, death is not natural. This was not God's original plan for us that we would die. This was not God's hope for us that we would die. God even said, hey, the day you eat this, you're going to die, die. You're going to surely die. In the Hebrew, it's this word twice. Like, you're going to die, die. It's going to be a physical and spiritual death. The day you disobey, the day you eat this. The point is, this was not God's original heart or plan for us. Death is not natural. Death kind of frustrates us, and it should. You know what it tells me? It tells us that it's okay to cry at a funeral. It's okay to be broken. It's okay to be sad. It's okay. Sometimes Christians are weird. Like, don't cry. I'm like, no, cry. Like, cry. Be reminded that death is not okay. Be reminded that this is not natural, that this is not normal. This is not God's will. And God, this is so not God's will that God's like, I'm going to take on this curse of death. I'm going to die, even though I'm God, I'm going to die so that you can be made alive. I'm going to conquer death so you don't have to fear death. That's why Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, he says, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. He, Paul calls death like an enemy, man, like military language. Like, this is not okay. This is an enemy for us. And he goes, this will be the last thing that's destroyed. Like, this is going to be done. So I, I think there's something that we have to hear today that, yes, in Adam all die, but in Christ all are made alive. You know, yes, we all going to face death, but we will rise again. George Herbert, this is a great theologian, said this. He says, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel has, has just made him a gardener. I love that. Like death used to be an executioner, like bury you in the ground. And you're like, oh my gosh, death is just terrible executioner. I love that idea of a gardener. I just don't know why. I just picture like death with like the black coat and like the whatever, the, what is that thing? Like a sickle? I don't know. Um, I don't know the word. But I just picture it like now with like a gardening like little thing. And it's like, oh, because he, bur he buried in the ground, but you just come out now. Like as a gardener. 
You, you put a seed in the ground, what happens? It comes out new. It, it's still the seed, but it's not the seed. It goes in a seed, but comes out a different body. This is what Paul's saying. Hey, if you believe in Jesus, sure, your body goes in the grave, but you come out the same, but different. I think that's what people are like, is that Jesus? Is this resurrected? Who is, what is that? Is the glorified Jesus, the resurrected Jesus? Listen, I think this is one of those things where the gospel is so much more, by the way, than, than, you just, just, than just heaven. Let me just be clear. I think for so many years, um, I just wanted to not go to hell. I think for so many years, it's like, okay, God, I don't want to go to hell. Like, this sounds really bad. I don't want to go there. And can I tell you what God's been doing the last decade? It's not so much like, I just want to have heaven, streets of gold. It's like, the gospel is not just, hey, do you want to get out of hell and get out of death? Like, do you want to get out of hell with a free card? But the gospel's turned into just, I want Jesus. Like, I just want Jesus. Like, meaning, you know what? Like, it's great. I don't, I don't want to die and, and be spiritually die. And I don't want to be separated from God. I want to be with God. It's not about so much like, I don't want to suffer. It's like, I just want to be with him. I want to have what Adam and Eve had. I want to have what this walking with God and knowing God and the Bible talks about heaven in that light. It's, it's so much more than just not dying and going to hell. It's so much more than that. It's like, do you want Jesus? Do you just want him, the person of Jesus? Again, death taunts us. Death is like, an abru- it, it just kind of breaks up our life, but I love what Paul does. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, still talking about death. He goes, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, hell, where is your victory? I love that Paul starts taunting death. Because like, death taunts us. Paul's like, yo, what up, death? Where's your sting? Hey, hell, where's your victory? This word sting in the Greek, it, it implies this like poison. The idea like, it, you know, it stings a bit, but the poison, it's gone. Like there's no more poison. There's no more sting attached to it. Like you, you see that the fear of death is what? Really judgment. When you think about death, like the fear of death is like, wait, am, 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 is there gonna be judgment day? Hold on, so Hitler just millions, kills six million Jews and there's no judgment day? No, there is a judgment day. Absolutely there's a judgment day. But Paul says, you know what Jesus' death and resurrection means? It means Jesus bore our judgment. That Jesus experienced judgment day so we could experience that Cairo, that grace. You see, that's why Paul's now taunting death. He goes, you lost your sting. The fear of death doesn't haunt me anymore because the fear of judgment doesn't haunt me anymore. You've lost your sting on me. Hell, you lost your victory. Jesus is victorious. Church, I just want to invite all of you into what Jesus invited us to. Jesus, that day with, when his friend Lazarus was dead, looks at his sisters and says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, shall live. Do you believe this? I love that. Jesus asked that to them. He goes, hey, your brother's dead, but listen, I'm the resurrection and the life. I am. And though you die, if you believe in me, you shall live. Do you believe this? And I want to ask that same question. Do you believe this? If, if the answer is wholeheartedly, yes, I believe this, then you too, though you die, will live. Then you too can taunt death with the same spirit as Paul, just going, ha, death, you lost your sting because Jesus conquered you that day. You're a bee, Jesus took away your stinger. Like there's nothing. You can't do anything to me anymore. And I love this idea. Church, here's what I want you to see. See the evidence for the risen Jesus, but see the risen Jesus. See the future. See the idea of what all of this implies for us. It's so beautiful. Why would we turn down this free gift? Don't turn this down. If you have not believed in Jesus, if you're not surrendered to Jesus, know that Jesus right now, I believe, is pursuing you. He wants to meet you. He wants to say, hey, it's me. I'm risen. I am everything I claim to be. These men, these women, they gave their life for the truth. They died for this truth. Their kids died for this truth. This gospel message spread. These 11 misfits essentially changed the world. Why? Because they saw something that day. Jesus is risen. Amen? Let us pray.